0: Uh, Have you read with uh, me from verses 1 to 4 again? I know we've read the chapter, and that's most helpful. Hebrews chapter 7. That's most helpful. But what I want you to do tonight is to look with even more attention, and yes, prayerful attention, as always, at uh, this chapter, and in particular, the opening part of the chapter where we read we read for this Melchizedek king of Salem priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all we call that the tithe. Abraham set the child of God the example. He, he he proved God by giving to him the tithe, what he had received. Now, further in verse two, you'll read, and this is about Melchizedek. First, being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem. Which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like unto the son of God. Abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Let's keep our Bibles open as we turn to God's word this evening. My heart warms to this subject. I am to speak about Melchizedek. As you see here, he's the king of Righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the priest of the most high God. Now there's a high probability that Melchizedek, who first appears in the Genesis history, I say a a high probability that Melchizedek would scarcely be noticed at all by God's people except for the further mention that God has been pleased to give to him in the book of Psalms and here in the epistle to the Hebrews. But even now, there's still a case for saying that Melchizedek has not come in for adequate studied attention on the part of the Christian. And some here might freely agree that in their years of faithful attendants at the house of God. They have heard little about him. He has been effectively passed over by large numbers of Christian people. I suppose it's because there's a kind of mystery about him. Melchizedek appears so suddenly In the Genesis record. And then when his dealings with Abraham have ended. He disappears from view. Just as suddenly. Just as mysteriously. As he came. And he's never heard of again. Until a thousand years later. When David composed his Psalms. And then only in, in one verse. And yet another thousand years roll by. Uh, my dates are given in round terms. Another thousand years roll by. Before the Apostle Paul raises the subject. As he does here in Hebrews. And so we're introduced to this Melchizedek. Look at the start of verse 1. There. This Melchizedek this Melchizedek is a real person he's not an apparition he does not appear in a vision or in a dream he's a man of highest eminence for he's the only person described in scripture in terms of these three titles what do we have there king of righteousness the king of peace the priest of the most high god so we think then, when we talk about Melchizedek, of three parts of the Bible, the brief introduction that we have to him and uh, Genesis 14, where Melchizedek stands in contrast to Abraham, and then we shift attention to uh, the Psalms, Psalm 110, uh, which brings to our view the heavenly majesty of Christ and this Psalm 110 raises our subject to a new level for our Lord Jesus Christ is seen there long before he comes into the world he's seen there enthroned in majesty on high and then when we come to Hebrews there is his prominence in the glory A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have three chapters here in Hebrews. All of them mention Melchizedek. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. Where Melchizedek is mentioned by name nine times. We have to keep then all these scripture portions in mind as best we can. And let me put it this way. In Genesis... Melchizedek is viewed in relation to the past. In Hebrews, our Lord Jesus himself is presented in relation to the present hour. While in the Psalms, we move from the present into the future. And what a glorious future is foreseen there in Psalm 110, where the words of the Psalm in relation to Christ, or quoted with such effect in the New Testament, quoted by our Savior in the Gospels, quoted by the apostles too in the rest of the New Testament. We have interesting words in chapter 5 about him. Look at verse 11, where the apostle is saying concerning Melchizedek, And he has many things to say about him even though as we have been pointing out quite a lot of Christian people would have to say by way of personal witness we have heard little about him and Christians then in recent times say have had little to say by way of mention of Melchizedek but Paul is taking a different line And he's saying, I have many things to say, many things to say about Melchizedek, and some of them hard to be uttered. I take that to be a reference to interpretation, hard to get a hold of, even for God's people. And it stands to reason, does it not, that many of these things that are on the mind of the Apostle Paul are put before us in the epistle to the Hebrews. And maybe there are some things, when he talked about those things, hard to be uttered, maybe hard to be understood. Uh, Perhaps some of them are yet to be discerned. What I want you to do tonight particularly is to give attention to verse 4 so that in our contemplation we may be Guided by the Lord. Hebrews 7 and 4. There's a reference to Melchizedek. Now consider how great this man was. Unto whom even the patriarch, even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. The Lord has given us counsel tonight in this study. To give consideration to a man from ancient time. Consider how great this man was. Let's just begin with that word consider. What does it suggest to you? Or to change the question a little bit. How would the word that's translated consider there be used in other parts of the gospel? I think that it will be very helpful just to take a moment or two see what lies in the background so to speak to the word consider let's turn to Matthew's gospel so we're looking for a reference in Matthew 27 to uh, the word that here in uh, Hebrews 7 and 4 is translated consider it has to do with see. Seeing clearly, and in verse fifty-five of that chapter, the evangelist takes us to Mount Calvary. Matthew twenty-seven, verse fifty-five. He speaks of the woman who followed the Lord from Galilee, and there they are at the cross. Scripture saying many women were there beholding afar off which followed Jesus from Galilee ministering unto him. These grief stricken women got as near to the cross as they could but all the time their eyes are fastened on the man of Calvary. We may be sure that even if, in comparison to others, they were afar off physically. Yet they were as near, they were as near to the Lord just then as, as they could be. Think of the scene. They could not take their eyes of him. No, not for a moment. They could not think of anything else or anyone else. Their whole mind, their whole being taken up with the Christ of the cross. Now, we have not managed to give anything like that attention to Melchizedek that these women gave to the Saviour. And yet, we have to take something on board out of this, that when those women gazed upon the cross, set their eyes upon Christ there in his last hour, that was a look of recognition. That was a look of fascination. That was a look that gripped their whole being. So their heart and soul was put into that look that day as they stood near to Calvary. That's how we're to think of this word consider. Even if we don't match in attention uh, the kind of uh, approach that the woman had. But we are to come to this portion with uh, close attention. With our heart and soul put into what we see of him. In Matthew 28, so you don't have far to go. Matthew 28 verse 1, the word appears again. This time the two Marys are on the way to see the sepulcher. They do not approach the tomb with light-heartedness. or they don't come casually, but they come to see the place where the Lord is entombed, as they think of it. As yet, they they do not grasp the great truth of the resurrection. Uh, we can do no better than read it there, Matthew twenty-eight and one. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to. See the sepulchre. To see the sepulchre. Let's think about that because it's the same word that's used in Hebrews. And when they approach in that hour of darkness in the early morning, when they approach the sepulchre, they want to look upon the place. It's a look of recognition, a look of fascination, a look that takes our whole heart and being. I think you would agree with me in that. So That's the first time the word appears. And the second time the word appears, it has to do with Calvary. It has to do with seeing Christ. Another time the word appears, not the third time, but another time is John 20. And I refer to John 20 because... Uh, It's in the same context as uh, we have used in, in Matthew's gospel. The context of the resurrection. John 20. This word appears again. The word translated consider. It's a fair question. How are we to consider him? What does the word consider suggest to us? We're trying to fill in the picture in John 20 the word occurs in verse 6 verse 12 verse 14 can we just single those verses out in verse 6 then cometh Simon Peter following him following John the beloved apostle and went into the sepulchre and seeth that's the word he seeth the linen clothes lying there how did he consider them Oh, he recognized them for a start. That was a look of recognition. There must have been a degree of fascination there when he beheld the linen clothes. And his very being, his whole heart and soul, has to be moved by what he sees. I think the picture comes over vividly clear, does it not? John 20, verse 6. And again, in, in the verse 12, Mary's experience. What a thrill this has brought to her heart. She stood without, verse 11 says, she stood without at the sepulchre, weeping. She knows the tomb is empty. She knows that now. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And seeth two angels. There it is, the word seeth. The picture that meets her gaze. She seeth two angels in white sitting. One at the head and the other at the feet. Where the body of Jesus had led. How moving was that experience for her. When uh, stooping down looking into the sepulchre. Seeing the place where the sacred head lay. And the place there for his feet. And the tomb is empty. But there are two angels, one at the head, one at where the feet of Christ had been placed. And how does she look at what she sees? Certainly the look of recognition. Certainly fascinated by what she sees. And without a doubt her whole heart and soul is taken up with what she sees. And in verse 14 We find turning back later outside in the garden, she saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was the Savior. So it's interesting to follow up this word that um, is translated, consider in Hebrews 7, consider how great this man was. It's a fair question. How are we to consider him? With what order, with what stirrings of heart are we to consider him? This is the chapter, then, we want to think about. I could go on taking illustrations of the word that lies behind the one translated here, uh, consider. But that would be a subject in itself, perhaps. Yet I would give you a, a reference or two that you can write down. Mark 3 and 11. That happens to be the third instance. Where it occurs. Mark 3 and 11. Where the demons fell down. With loud cries. When they saw him. Isn't that a look of recognition? Isn't that a look of fascination? Isn't that a look that stirs our whole being? Yes it is. Or Acts 7.56. This is remarkable the death of Stephen and Stephen a valiant servant of the Lord suffers a cruel death and yet there in the horror of it all men and women in the horror of it all he's able to lift his head look up to the heavens and cry I see Jesus that's the word that's the same word Stephen in his death see Jesus risen exalted glorified. You can see the closeness between that and the subject in Hebrews. Acts seven fifty six, to see Jesus there. It's most moving. And I can't leave out John 17 and 24 where our Lord is saying, and yes I, I have thought about it and memorized it. Uh, when my memory doesn't fail me but 1724 I heartily recommend this to you our Lord's great prayer just before he enters Gethsemane he brings us to the heights of glory at the end of this prayer John 17 verse 24 Father I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am That they may behold, there's the word, to behold my glory. How are you going to look at the glory of Christ in heaven? How will you gaze into his face? With what attention? With what stirring of heart will you see him then? Remember Moses' great prayer. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God in a great measure answered that prayer. And this is like an answer to Moses' prayer, even by extension. For this time, we're not down at Mount Sinai, but we're up in heaven, and all the saints, not just Moses, but all the saints, have this wonderful privilege of beholding him in the glory, in that throne where Hebrews puts him. You see. So it's relevant, isn't it? It's proper. If we say, consider how great this man is. To say to ourselves, now, what does that word consider suggest to us? Now, how is it used elsewhere if it is used? And we have taken time. I trust these pictures, these word pictures from the Bible have brought home to your heart just what it means to consider him. There, when you're reading Chapter 7 and verse 4 out of Hebrews. It would be possible for someone just to rattle on through the verse without hesitating, without sensing that they're standing in the threshold of the holy place. Now consider, just stop here. Behold him. Look at the glory with recognition and with holy fascination and with that stirring of heart that you would naturally associate with the experience. I consider how great uh, this mom was. We'd have to say when we take on board these word pictures and the experience of the disciples that The thrill in our heart as we study Melchizedek doesn't quite match up to what they had. Nevertheless, we benefit because we can see, yes, it's a step up to have the experience they had, to uh, look upon Christ the way they did. And we can say, certainly, Lord, show us the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. And how would we consider how great this man is? First of all, we should consider his titles. They're given there in uh, verse 1 and verse 2. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Again, verse 2, being first of all, by interpretation, king of righteousness. And after that, king of Salem, which is king of peace. We have these names interpreted by the Holy Spirit. Bible names are important. Particularly those names that are interpreted by the Holy Spirit. To many a reader, however, the meaning is clear. But then for evidence, for backup, for confirmation, comes the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself. Melchizedek. How do we understand that word? I know the Holy Spirit has interpreted here. The title for us? Malke, In Melchizedek. Malki is my king. Zedek is righteousness. Justifying righteousness. So that you can see. The picture of Christ here. My king. Of righteousness. And also. The meaning is. My righteous king. Melchizedek. The king of righteousness. And then. He's the King of Salem, and this time the Holy Spirit of God has linked the word Salem with Shalom. And I dare say everybody here knows the word Shalom, meaning peace. The king of peace. Then he's the priest of the Most High God. We could speak of his greatness because of his titles. And furthermore, in this verse too, you may get uh, a little touch on the doctrine of inspiration, the verbal inspiration of scripture. Because we know that God gave the words of the Bible in their original form. Matthew 5.18, you needn't turn it up. Matthew Matthew 5.18, for example. Every jot and every tittle, every word... Every letter, right down to the identifying part of a letter, carries the stamp of God. And not only the words and the letters in the original scriptures, but the order in which the words appear is also inspired. Do you pick that up from verse 2? being first by interpretation king of righteousness you say well how do you get that well just by reading the sentence as it is Melchizedek king of Salem by Melchizedek we can understand king of righteousness and then in due order following in after that the king of Salem king of peace and the Holy Spirit of God draws to our attention even the matter of the order in which the words occur in the Scriptures. This is a high view of inspiration. Uh, Maybe some of God's children today would have to learn uh, to look at the inspiration of Holy Scripture in a new way so that we can keep pace with the Apostle In the faith that we have in the written word of God. We believe in the whole book. All scripture given by inspiration of God. So he's great. Consider how great he is given the titles he possesses. We can go on and say he is to be considered in his greatness. Because unlike the Levitical priests. His priesthood continues. There's a testimony to that. In uh, verse 3. He abideth. He continues. He remains. That's the sense of abideth there. He abideth a priest continually. He's there all the time. We'll see more of that a little later. In verse 8. It is witnessed that he liveth. Our great high priest. Is one who is alive on high. And it is witnessed of him. That he liveth. And he abideth. Oh what force there is in these words. The priesthood of Christ. Belongs to his ministry on high. He entered into his priesthood. When he ascended up into the heavenlies. Having risen from the dead. We consider his greatness because unlike the Levitical priest, his priesthood continues. And again, we see uh, the, the distinction of that greatness that he possesses. We see him superior to Abraham. Now, this is something that takes a heart. If you look at chapter 7 again, uh, and uh, we're going to... See how Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 1. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And blessed him. And then again verse 6. That he blessed him that had the promises. And once more verse 7. Without all contradiction. The less is blessed of the better. Three times then there is a testimony in the chapter paid to this incident that Abraham was blessed and it's worthwhile thinking about this because uh, the information is in verse 7 there without all contradiction uh, I think that means Paul expected contradiction because maybe that was a hard point for some to take in uh, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham when everyone would have expected that it would have been the other way around and Abraham would have blessed him perhaps even more so given the fact that Abraham along with his companions has just returned from the war he's travelled long long miles now we may say he's weary, he's worn he comes here, is met by Melchizedek who refreshes him with bread and wine. are oh, Symbols of redemption. And Abraham in thankfulness. Could have blessed the one. Who so refreshed him. But here is the thing. It was Melchizedek who blessed him. Now that word blessing is interesting. In the Old Testament. We're back to word pictures again. In the Old Testament the word for blessing has to do with bending the knee. There you can see the suppliant at the throne of grace seeking God's blessing and in order to obtain the best of the blessings it's necessary for him to bend the knee. It's on bended knee that you obtain God's best. And so that's the picture here. And we're told that the the whole tribe of Levi, representatively of course, the whole tribe of Levi bowed the knee that day to Melchizedek and that's an astonishment to us. It must have had a powerful effect on those who were worshipping in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at that time to receive a message like that that the whole tribe of Levi representatively bowed the knee that day you can see verses 8, 9 and 10 evidence there of uh, how that representation took place verse 9 in particular and as I may so say Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham and so he was represented there that day and uh, he is On this understanding, he is the person paying tithes. That's a message concerning the failure of the Levitical priesthood. An imperfect priesthood gives way to the perfect priesthood of Christ. For we've read today, didn't we, chapter 7, verse 19, that the law made nothing perfect. That would have to be true of the whole Mosaic institution. The tabernacle, great as it was, was not perfect. The priesthood, even the priesthood of Levi, was not perfect. The sacrifices offered were not perfect. Those sacrifices never provided atonement. They never washed away the stain of sin. Those sacrifices, however well intended, fell short of perfection. Perfection. And the worshippers were not perfect. All these things together are brought into view with the statement the law made nothing perfect. The message has to be there's no salvation that way. And I think everybody present here has heard the message often enough. You can't be saved by good works. You can't be saved by keeping the law. Because as it was in the days of Moses, so even in our time the law made nothing perfect and to be accepted it must be perfection, that's why we need Christ our great high priest perfection is found in him alone he's the perfect saviour we have in him perfect salvation we have a perfect hope anything else by way of religion falls short of perfection and it's important for the Christian to see that The priesthood of Melchizedek is established by an oath. And that gives it its perpetuity. Attention is brought to uh, uh, that in the chapter here. Hebrews 7 verses 20 and 21. A priesthood established by the divine oath. But uh, is there not something else? Those tithes that were brought representatively by Levi. From whom did those tithes come? Look at verse 5. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren. So the tithes came from the brethren. Who are the brethren? The rest of the tribes. Tribe of Reuben. Issachar. Naphtali. Judah. Oh yes. All the tribes are represented then. Because they paid the tithes to Levi. And Levi. Representatively paid the tithes to Melchizedek. That day. So all Israel then. Are represented here. Consider how great. This man is and the blessing that comes. We can say all the saints, all who are in Abraham, representatively, even in the New Testament, you pick out Peter, James, and John, Paul too, all Israel, representatively, are identified here. But I have something to show you. That it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham And the scripture is saying this in verse 7. And there are other verses too. Without all contradiction. The less is blessed of the better. So if the tithe was given. Representatively. By all the brethren. with Levi to the fore. Then the blessing that came to Abraham. Was also given to him. Representatively. And that blessing passed on to the rest. And we can say we are blessed in him. We're blessed in Christ. It's a precious study. And one has got to say, ah, the priesthood of Melchizedek is an unchangeable priesthood. Because the, the priests in uh, the days of Moses and that long line of priests coming right down to the, the birth of Christ, those priests passed away. They suffered infirmity. Eventually, in the course of time, they grew old and died. And somebody else came in, taking the office of the priest. to Take his place. Sometimes a, a less than good man was replaced by an excellent man. Sometimes it was the other way around. But in it all, you can see the imperfection of the priesthood. That Levitical priesthood only pictured the great priesthood to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the priesthood of Melchizedek, there's no change. There is the living Christ, the living Savior. Can we fit in? I know it's maybe difficult for time, but Psalm 110 seems worth our attention tonight because the Holy Spirit of God has taken us in. Our investigation into the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's taken us to the psalm. Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord. The Lord, that is Jehovah, said unto my Lord, David's Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Rightly understood. These are powerful words. They show us that David's Lord is Christ. In the New Testament, the words are taken up. In the Gospels, also in Acts. Then in the Epistles. Now, in uh, the studies this year, as you know, the book Given special attention is the epistle to the Hebrews. And the epistle to the Hebrews is like an exposition of Psalm 110, verse 1. When you take on board the words of this psalm, the words that commence verse 1, just look at this because you have Christ there. You may say, Oh, I'm not much of a student. Somebody might say that. Somebody else may say, I've been tired today. Well, we all suffer infirmity. Well, I want to get your attention now. Surely if we can see Christ in the scriptures. In the prophetic scriptures as we do here. Our eyes are upon him. Remember that look of recognition. Remember that fascination with him. Remember that looking at him. Our heart and soul can be stirred. So the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand it's like an exposition of the whole epistle to the Hebrews for in Hebrews in place after place we see Christ risen exalted and in the glory that's the whole emphasis in Hebrews there are five in particular we might uh, press upon your attention if you have Hebrews marked in your Bible and I would like to think you have Hebrews chapter 1 let me just show you this because you may say well I understood what you said there but I'm not too sure that I can see that in terms of the actual letter to the Hebrews have we missed it? have we read Hebrews uh, right through from chapter 1 to the end? have we looked for pictures of Christ there? the risen saviour, our great high priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Remember what I'm saying, that the whole epistle to the Hebrews is like an exposition of Psalm 110, verse 1. And when you read there, allow me to read the latter part of the verse, where our saviour is seen upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Doesn't that come to you as a repetition of Psalm 110 verse 1. Sit down, sit down, sit down in my right hand. It's good. Chapter 1 verse 13 now in Hebrews. And to which of the angels. Christ is not an angel. We don't teach the obnoxious doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well I tell you this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the divine son. To which of the angels said he at any time. Sit on my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's the second one. Teaching Christ is risen. Your saviour Christ is risen. Exalted glorified. It is right to say then that the epistle to the Hebrews in its emphasis the driving force of this imposing letter is to see where Christ is. Now chapter 8 verse 1 now we're getting close to where we've been today. Chapter 8 verse 1 mark the words again now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have, oh, notice those words, we have. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Can you go through Hebrews and not see this? The advantage of having a perfect Saviour, perfect hope. Seeing where he is. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 verse 12. We can't leave this out. Chapter 10. uh, Verse 12. Dealing with the blood atonement. The cardinal message of the gospel. The sacrificial offering of Christ. The saviour who died once and for all. For our sins. Chapter 10 verse 12. But this man. All right. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice. The high priest in Judaism was offering one sacrifice after another. A sacrifice that could never take away sin. But this man, having offered one sacrifice for sin eh, forever, needs no repetition. He sat down on the right hand of God. And Hebrews 12. We'll just marked five texts through the epistle to the Hebrews. Right there. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking. Now it's not the word translated consider earlier. But it's an equivalent is it not? Looking on to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross despising the shame and ails. Sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's just like Psalm 110. Doesn't that stir your heart? Doesn't that do you so good that we can say, Our Lord is seated now? In all the Levitical ceremonies, the high priest could never sit down, his work was never done. Some of you have studied the tabernacle, even the furnishings of the tabernacle, and you've studied the furnishings of the tabernacle in detail. Well, I warrant that you've never found any evidence of there being a seat there. It doesn't exist. No seat is provided. Because the work of the high priest was never done. Well, here in Christ, we're looking at the finished work. That's the thrill. Of Tying in these scriptures together. Hebrews with the Psalms. And the psalmist saw it all long, long, long. Before our saviour was born at Bethlehem. It's a tremendous thing. And it would be a separate day to go into Psalm 110. But I think we can just get the bones of it here. And you'll see that we have a glorious day. Still future When the king will come. That great and glorious day of the Lord's return hastens on. And you will see first of all in verse 1. A glorious day of victory. When that magnificent victory will be publicly demonstrated. When God will make the enemies of Christ his footstool you will see that David's Lord is identified as being Christ. There are two days in the psalm. That's the day of his power and the day of his wrath. The day of his power for the believer. The day of his wrath is for the enemies of the cross. And in the day of his power, we have God's people richly blessed, to put it briefly, And then in the day of his wrath, it says in verse 3, notice the solemn words, he will strike through kings, particularly the ten kings of the Roman earth, particularly the ten kings in the day of his wrath. And then he will wound the head over many countries. That's verse 6. He shall judge among the heathen, or the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. Uh, He shall wound the heads over many countries. In the Hebrew text, the word heads is in the singular. He shall wound, wound that person who is the head over many countries in the Roman earth. We have these pictures of Christ, and I have... I tried to condense them and go through them quickly uh, in Psalm 110. But right there in the middle, the middle verse, that's verse 4. You have know, Christ, the priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We started off today by saying, let's consider how great this man is. Now I showed, or I tried to show you the significance of that word, Consider. How, even in this first expression in the Gospels concerning Christ, the heart is stilled. The whole being is moved when we see Him. And what, what, what a platform to stand on from which to view the Lord Christ. If their hearts were moved, then certainly we want our hearts to be moved. How can I sum it up? How can I sum up for you the priesthood of Christ? how precious the word is how blessed we are to consider him who at this very instant is our great high priest in the heavenly places number one just let me put these points succinctly number one speaking of the high priesthood of Christ number one he ever lives for us at God's right hand On high. That is to say, He represents you and me. You can put your own name in there. You can think of yourself as a person. You can say, He's in heaven now and He lives for me. That's wonderful. Number two, our Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, makes intercession for us. And He makes intercession for us as one who is touched by the feeling of our infirmities and one who is fully able to succor them that are tempted what a saviour he is he is able that's what Hebrew says he's able to succor those who are tempted and number three so first of all just to give you a rundown he is our great high priest because he ever lives for us he represents you and me At heaven's throne. And secondly. He makes intercession for us. And thirdly. He grants to us immediate access. And immediate acceptance with God. When we come to him in prayer. He has opened up a new and living way. This is how the Christian can pray. So that we can come to the mercy seat. And find grace to help. Time of need. And number four. He has entered into the holiest of all with his own blood. Hebrews 9. And 27 and 28. He's there as our great high priest. And we come to the Lord in prayer. We come by the God appointed blood sprinkled way. To the throne of grace. And number five. You can see what it means to have a great high priest Who's there all the time. The high priest alone in the Levitical period. Now, the high priest alone had access to God. Nobody else could come. And even then the high priest could only enter into God's immediate presence once in the year. How infinitely better is the high priesthood of Christ. where well, we can come to him at all times. Just the illustration, do you remember the man, King Uzziah by name, who thought that he would enter into God's presence? He would not need the high priest who was there before him, and I suppose he pushed him out of the way, or almost got to do that, entering into God's presence. That's what he would do, King Uzziah. And the priests tried to stop him, but they could not. But God stopped him, and he got no further. To demonstrate that even then, there is no way whereby God's people of ancient time could come into his presence. But the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering for us, suffering once and for all, has shown us that it's no longer only once in a year. And it's no longer just for the high priest alone. But it's for everybody who saved by grace. Everybody can come. Now we have access to the Lord. And there's another thing I must add. My my great high priest, this is personal. He's with me all the time. In fact, he's with me forever. If I lie dying someday out in the street there, nobody will have to rush off in desperation looking for a priest. Looking for a priest for me. Because I'll be able to say, I have, I have already got my high priest. He's with me. Even in passing from this earthly scene into the glory, that's the time he's there. You can see the superiority of the high priesthood of christ and there he is ever loving ever loving ever true do you know the lord today can you say because he lives i will live also and if there were unconverted people here today supposing this was a gospel meeting an evangelistic service. Suppose some were sitting under the sound of God's word for the first time. Why, Hebrews 7.25 tells us about the high priesthood. In these terms, as my great high priest, he's able to save. Able to save to the uttermost. Able to save the guilty lost sinner. Able to save that man, woman or child who will penitently and trustingly come to him. He's able to save. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save all who come. Those who come unto God. By him. Christ is such a high priest. Rightly seen. Our hearts will thrill with joy. To say this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the epistle to the Hebrews. Christ now. Now risen, exalted, glorified. And in Psalm 110, the voice of the Father is saying to the Son, Sit at my right hand, because the work is done. And now we await His coming again. May the Lord bless His word today to your heart, even for His name's sake. Amen.